Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. Raccoons are big, they're strong, and if there's a maternal instinct going on, and I mean, I don't know much about animals, but so I tugged and tugged. I didn't see a, a larger raccoon, but I don't want to be anywhere near it. People remember the story I told from my first house in Washington, D.C., where a raccoon was perched on the garbage can, and this thing had to weigh 50 pounds. And it looked at you. And looked at me and said, this is mine now, (laughs) bud. Why don't you go inside? (laughs) The Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. Totally true story. (laughs) 6340 Utah Avenue Northwest. You want a piece of me? No. I don't. I honestly don't. From Chris Spira, the general manager and VP of operations of the D.C. Grays Baseball Club, please find enclosed my annual box of D.C. Grays gear for you and the squad. Once again, a new supply of foam baseballs for your grandsons to chuck around. We're using them to learn how to catch. Sorry, Michael. As you have generously shared with your audience in the past, the Grays are a not-for-profit organization and are D.C.'s only team in the Cal Ripken Collegiate Baseball League, which, like the Cape Cod League and others, is a summer Wood bat league yes, for college players. You don't want to hear the sound of that ping off the metal. You want a wood bat. The Grays play their home games at the Washington Nationals Youth Academy at 3675 Eli Place, or Ely Place, Southeast. First home game was already June 5th. Our website with the roster and the game schedule is dcgrays.com, G-R-A-Y-S, dcgrays.com. Admission to our home games, always free. We're proud to be the official sponsor of the Washington, D.C. RBI, Reviving Baseball in Inner Cities program, and to put on other programs to support baseball in underserved communities in the D.C. area. We're again proudly claiming our status as the official summer collegiate baseball team of the Tony Kornheiser Show. We support them fully. I mean, we don't Absolutely. do anything except that Spiritually. we support them. We've yes. been looking at the schedule, and it made me uh, walk. Uh, Bootsy had a spirit week at, at his school. And we saw one of the kids wearing a Gray's t-shirt. That's nice. Oh, that's great. We're excited about the possibility of Darren Baker, a D.C. Gray's alumni, making the major leagues this season with the Nats. I know you question whether or not this year's national teams are, in fact, a major league team. Darren would be our first former D.C. Gray to accomplish that. As always, thank you for your generous support of the Gray's, an organization about which I care deeply and for decades of smart and funny, the TK standard to which we all aspire. Chris Spira, very nice, always nice. We love Chris. As we tell him all the time, you don't have to give us stuff. Yes. The baseballs for Michael, for the kids, are nice, but you don't have to do that. Um, Jingle Fest is going on right now. I know that Bonnie is involved in Jingle Fest. Bonnie has told me she's bringing six or eight people into the control room on Friday. That ought to be fun for the people working, huh? (laughs) (laughs) That ought to be fun. So we'll see. But I, I guess there's plenty of activities. You have sometimes gone to activities. Is your is it your plan to go to activities? I, unfortunately, no, not this weekend. I won't be able to. But yes, no, it's always lovely to to see, you know, all the littles. Um, I've, I've got to sit. It's a remarkable and, tribute to the show. Oh, it absolutely it is. is flat, and, right, it is flattering beyond comprehension. Yeah, and it, it's not about us. But nothing no. to do with you. We it's are. About we the are community. just. We are just step A. Yes. They're on step M and N. We're just step yeah. A. Yeah, unfortunately, the main event often syncs up with a big birthday. We have number six coming up this weekend. Mm-hmm. There, is an, there is an event that I've circled uh, that is on the smaller side that I'm hoping to make it to. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and if I can sort of figure it out, I would love to stop by something just to see the folks. You know, it's, uh, it's a... We'll go to Bethesda a, Bagel. That's right. That's right. Nice. Yeah, I'll nice. just post out there for all weekend. Come by yeah, and say hi. Get a cup, cup of coffee from Quartermains. <laughs> so we're going to, we'll have Brian Windhorst on in a little bit, and we'll talk about the, the Wizards. Have you, 
The Wizards are sinking to the bottom deliberately. This guy, Michael Winger, when he was hired, the conversation must have gone like this with Ted Leonsis. Michael Winger saying to Ted Leonsis, if you're serious about me, you're going to have to agree to what I'm saying now or else I don't want the job because I've already got a job. And Leonsis would say, what? And Winger would say, your team stinks. You've been treading water for years. You've been churning the roster for years. <clears throat> you don't keep anybody for any length of time except for Bradley Beal, and he's got the worst contract in the world, and you gave it to him. So, Ted, you're going to have to sit down and watch what happens when a pro comes in. We're going to get rid of people. We're going to go to the bottom and try and build from there because what you have now is not sustainable. You have draft picks that you get rid of. They come in for a week or a month or a year, and then somebody bounces them. You got people who publicly say, like Kyle Kuzma, he wants to be a free agent and go elsewhere. You have Bradley Beal, who you pay $50 million a year to, and he can't win any games. What do you got? So within a span of, what, 72 hours? They got rid of Bradley Beal. Now they've gotten rid of Kristaps Porzingis, who was their second best player. They cashed him out, sent him to Boston. Get out of here. There's no point. And Kuzma's going to leave because yep. he's a free agent. They're going to lose their three best players overnight. And their three best players from a 32-win team. So what? You're going to go down to the bottom. The only bad part of the strategy is if you were down at the bottom this year, you would have had a shot at Victor Wembanyama. But down at the bottom next year, you don't have that. There is no Victor Wembanyama waiting in the wings for next year. But that's, that's what's going on there. And so I think if you're a Wizards fan, while the next two years are going to be dreadful, they are a 20-win team. They, they stink. The next two years will be dreadful. After that, maybe this guy does know what he's doing. Worth a shot. Because the last guy, Tommy Shepard, didn't know what he was doing. No. Didn't have any idea. And, and you, Ted Leonsis, gave these contracts out. You can't do it. This paved the way for... We can't we... give a, no tra- a full no trade. Yeah. No, that was the killer. Yeah, just, you know, you know, what are you doing? All right. Um, All in for the Nats. One other thing. We're going to yes. talk... Yeah, I, I, it's very possible. Here, look. There was an announcement yesterday from the Leonsis family, from young Zach Leonsis, who I think you went to college with? Sure. Did you overlap or not overlap? Uh, I think maybe a year ahead of him, but... Yeah, okay. So they are now... They're out of... They're out of the Washington Sports Channel, whatever it was called, CNBC or MSNBC or NBC Sports Washington, whatever it was. Right. They have formed something that they now call Monumental Sports Network. Right. Why would you do that? Well, one of the reasons you would do that is because you have inventory to put on. You have the hockey team and you have the basketball team. And if, if you buy the baseball team, you have the most inventory. You have all-year inventory if you buy the baseball team. Why would you want to get out of a $250 million contract to throw that kind of money at the learners? Would be one reason you would want to do that. You would want to get cash rich as soon as you could because the way to make your television network successful is sports. And the mass and waters look a little bit smoother. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And you would get, you, you'd make a deal, you'd get away from Masson. There'd be no more Masson for the Nats. You'd, you'd get out of it. You'd be on the monumental sports network. So I think that's part of it. And speaking of the Nats, they won last night. Another afternoon game. 
drives me crazy when I come back with the dog and they're in the eighth. Now, I didn't even know it was an afternoon game. And they played in the rain. You know, uh, bravo to the people who stayed. It looked like one of those the games 300 that would be, people yeah, who stayed. It'd be fun once you're in the, in the middle of it. Do you stay. see the pitcher? Do you see his hair? Yeah, just stay. Everybody's wearing a plastic tarp, you know, uh, except for the guys drinking beer, standing up screaming. The eight guys who were there. And by the way, if you wanted to move down to a good seat, you could. It was okay. Nobody cared. So they won. Um, they beat St. Louis. Yes. Yes, yes for the one one win of that. The, the Nats are puttering along at, you know, one and three in most series or something like yeah. that. I, I, I don't want to talk about that as much as I want to talk about not, not this. Not even the C.J. Abrams home run? C.J. Abrams for a skinny little kids got pop. Yeah. I thought as soon as that went got out. Got a lot more home gonna, runs than Dominic Smith, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot more home runs than Dominic Smith. Um, okay. They put Victor Robles on the IL yesterday, the 10-day IL. Now, the official reason is that he had back spasms. He was on the 10-day IL that stretched to about 30 days before with back spasms. Lack of production, back spasms. So they're saying back spasms. (laughs) I'm going to sit here. If I was writing a column for the Washington Post, I would tell you in the first sentence, I don't believe back spasms. I'm not saying he doesn't have them, but I am saying that's not why they put this kid on ice. They put this kid on ice because they know, and if you watch these games, you know, he doesn't really want to play here anymore. He wants to be somewhere else. He let a ball drop in front of him the other day that caused the pitcher, Mackenzie Gore, to confront him in the dugout in full. This was not Papelbon and Harper. It (laughs) was not. Right. but But in full view... You know, of God and the fans, you could see the Mackenzie Gore was, what was that? What was that? Okay, and, and uh, Robles said they worked it out. It's no problem. You always have these things happen. But he let a ball stop in front of him. Third base coach was waving him in once. He didn't go in. He didn't go in. Didn't want to go all the way to he the play. He was playing 20 feet uh, behind where he normally plays in the outfield on that play that you're mentioning before. Yeah, just let it drop in front of him. Didn't charge it. And he's a great outfielder. Yes, a couple of days ago, he got picked off first. We talked about that. He got picked off first. When Bob Carpenter has never said a bad thing about that. He doesn't. No. He doesn't. Bob Carpenter, after the first pickoff attempt, said, oh, you, you can't get picked off if you're Victor Robles. You can't because this is a two-run game, and you got Lane Thomas at the plate. He's your best home run. And he just voluntarily said that the next pitch, he's picked off. Picked off. He's picked off. My, if I were writing a column, and I could be wrong about this, But I would dive into this one with the idea that Victor Robles doesn't want to play here and that Victor Robles, that they've put him on ice so they can trade him. You don't want to DFA him. You don't want to get nothing. Is there something you can get? Now, again, it's 50-50 I'm wrong. It's always 50-50 I'm wrong. But that's how I look at this. Do you look at it differently? Yeah, I would say this is one of those things where you just look at what was once a top prospect and how many times he was this Juan Soto until he had an arm, uh, he got a shoulder injury, and they brought up Juan Soto. Juan Soto um, wasn't the guy. And you think about how many times this happens to any prospect and what that might do to your psyche over the course of years and seasons, where you see all of the guys around you having success. Most notably, the guy who's playing uh, to the left of you. And in terms of getting something back or the value, unfortunately, the value when it comes to an everyday sport is that he's going to play center field every day at a very high level. Uh, and then you just have to sort of try and wonder what's going on with those mishaps where normally he can overcome, you know, playing 20 feet back because he's there for a reason. And then you just start to wonder 
what happened to the potential offense. So now it's he's hitting better this year. Everybody's high on the way he's hitting this year. He was not a major league hitter for a number of years. And again, maybe this is all back spasms. But then you gotta you gotta say, Skip, yeah, my back's killing me. You know, I got to get out of here for a while if that's what the problem was. I think it is deeper than that. I think there are, among the active roster, because Strasburg is not on the active roster, I think there's just Corbin and Robles from the World Series winner, I think, at this point. Wow. Are there more? I think it's just Yeah, in them. terms of active, I, you know, you might look. No, I think you're right. I think it's them. And when did, when did the Nats win the World Series? Was it 19? 2000. And, and wow. Victor Robles was there before that. Again, and you have to sort of stress this. Victor Robles was the uber prospect in the organization. Yes. Victor Robles. And it hasn't worked out. And it may well be that he says, you know what? I'm better than this. It's never going to happen for me here. There's too much stuff here, let me get out of here, right? Yeah. Doesn't it? I think that's all possible. So, but this is dime store psychology. Anyone who listens to me is a complete idiot. <laughs> um, so we'll take a break. Brian Windhorst, when we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This, this is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. This comes to us from Mark Teachin, who's the chaplain and Grace Palmer Johnston chair of the Bible at the Stony Brook School, but not that. Not that. Stony, Stony Brook. Brook. <clears throat> and he's playing songs off Amy Teachin's debut album, Wax Wonder. And he writes, with an unorthodox and brave start to her musical career at age 40, Amy Teachin combined her lifelong passions for poetry and story with songwriting and performance. She began by collaborating with a North Shore-based band, Sills Maria playing her first shows at established New York City venues like Pianos and Rockwood Music Hall. Although synth and guitar were her first instruments, a COVID-inspired purchase of a baritone ukulele. Not just a ukulele, the kids. baritone one. A baritone ukulele was the catalyst for Amy's songwriting to blossom. Uh, this is a song called Our Time. We'll play two songs by Amy today. Um, and it plays in Brian Windhorst. And this is early in the morning, kids. We always tell you what time it is. It's 7.30 Eastern uh, because Brian's got to be on Get Up and First Take and Second Take and Pat McAfee and the Pat McAfee a rump show, you know, the, the one like the Manning cast or whatever's going on. He's going to be on all day today because today is the day of the draft. And I, we're going to talk about Victor Wembanyama, obviously. But I got to just ask this early because, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. What in God's name are the Wizards doing? How low do they want to go? Victor Wembanyama is this year, Brian. Next year could be some guy named Billy Smith nobody cares about. What are they doing? Well, here's the thing. If Porzingis, Kristaps Porzingis, had opted out of his contract, they would get nothing for him. Right. And so they had to do the deal by midnight, uh, or he was going to opt out. And so here's the thing. Like, I understand, like, in a vacuum, you'd say, well, 
man, how do you get what you got for Bradley Beal, and then how do you get what you got for Porzingis? Stick but, figures. You get nothing. Well, they got a they got a, a 35th pick in this draft. Okay, great. And, that well, could look, be I me. Mean, if Porzingis opts out, they get nothing. So like, that's the thing. Like, he was operating, they were operating kind of like on a no-trade clause. Like, right. He was like, if he liked the trade at midnight, he'd opt in. If he didn't like the trade, sayonara. Yeah. So... That's the, that's the thing. Like, so, you know, I understand why you're saying it. I understand why Wizards fans are like, seriously? Um, but well, I'm just going to, there's, here's, I'll interrupt to say this. They got absolutely nothing for Bradley Beal. And I don't care because I thought that contract was idiotic. They got absolutely nothing for Kristaps Porzingis, who was here for an hour and a half. And Kuzma's going to leave as a free agent, right? So. Well, okay. First off, they got out of the contract. That's not nothing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. $200 million, they got a whole bunch of draft picks. I know that they're all second-rounders, but they got some swaps. I'm telling you, four years from now, they could end up like falling into a lottery pick because the Suns are, you know, this, it, it fails, and they're terrible, and you own the swap. Right. That's not nothing. Look, like, I mean, this is like, look, this is what he's got to do. He's not sitting there holding, you know, like uh, four aces. No, he's not. He's playing the cards he's got. Secondly, they got t- the second trade – Three times better than the first trade that fell through. They were going to do a deal with the Clippers. Sounds like Malcolm Brogdon, it was discovered yesterday, has a significant injury, so significant that he couldn't be traded anywhere else. So they had to, the Celtics had to do this backup deal. The midnight deadline forced them to it. They end up with Tyus Jones. Tony, Tyus Jones is a very good player. He's okay. the starting point guard this year, maybe into the future. Okay. He's a kid from Duke, right? Originally? Yes, he... Yes, he went to Duke, um, was a late first-round draft pick, and has turned into one of the best backup point guards in the NBA and maybe will be an excellent starter. I think that's where they're headed. Okay, but but you would agree that they're headed to the bottom because yes. they were treading water <laughs> for too many yes. years, getting nothing. Yes. Okay. All right, to good. be clear, yes. Let's move to Wembenyama. <laughs> Unlike Michael Wilbon, who raves about Wembenyama and has never actually seen him, claims to have seen him play live time on the NBA network. I don't even believe a word of that. Brian Windhorst has not only seen Victor Wembanyama play, but has spoken to him a number of times, went to France to chat with him. Twice. My, my sense of this, Brian, is that this year for Victor, Victor Wembanyama was like a post-grad year after high school when you get ready for college. That everything about this year, everything was to get ready for the NBA, right? That's right. He, this team that he was on, the entire structure of the team was designed to help him get ready for the NBA. Um, it would be like if, so he, he was at a team, let me put this in college terms, he was at a team that was in the top level. Let's say he was at North Carolina and he transferred basically to Murray State. Mm-hmm. And the reason he transferred to Murray State was he could pick the coach, he could pick all of his teammates, they would hire the trainer that he wanted. They would have the schedule that he wanted, all with an eye towards getting ready for the NBA draft. That meant, for example, they signed like three American guards who all had NBA experience because NBA, he wanted guys who knew how to play the sort of the NBA style of pick and roll. The way that they played and the way that they practiced was not like a normal team. They weren't trying to win the equivalent of the ACC. They, because, you know, at North Carolina, you can't just focus. This is what's happened in Kentucky over the years. 
Calipari is trying to win the national title. He's trying to win the SEC. He's not always 100% focused on what his guys are, are getting ready for the NBA for. He's focused on other stuff. So Wembenyama said, no, I'm going to focus only on me. And so he, he, the, the, he picked the coach and everything. And they still made the French finals because he's that good. And with a month left to go in the regular season, they lost their second best player. And they still made the French finals. So again, under the Murray State thing, let's say that he went in there and did that and then went to the final four. That's essentially what happened this league because he's, he, because he's so good. And everything that he did includes learning English to be proficient in the language. Am I correct? Well, he learned English. He knew when he was about 11 or 12 years old that he wanted to be in the NBA, which I know that happens. A lot of kids say that in America. It's not as, comp, it's not as prevalent in France. And he learned English in a way that was more American. He didn't focus on the French technique of teaching English. He focused on his own technique. In fact, one of the worst grades he got in high school, which he graduated a year early in, by the way, was from his English teacher, which still bothers him to this day. He gets his back up and starts complaining about her if you bring up this grade that he got in English. And he said, because I knew more than she did. Um, so he, it, it, part of a bunch of decisions he's made for the last six or seven years to reach this point was I'm going to focus on learning English as if I was an American, not as if I was in France learning from French people while yeah. speak English. This is what Carlos Correa did. Carlos Correa wanted to be in the major leagues and wanted to be a star and, and no one in his house spoke English and he taught himself English and he's really proficient at it. Um, Kelleher said that he was listening to a podcast you did with Simmons yesterday. And mm -hmm. he said, ask Brian about the size of Wembenyama's hands. Yeah. How, how big are his hands? So I, didn't, I haven't gotten a, out a tape measure. And since Wembenyama didn't do the combine because right. he was playing in the French playoffs, we don't have the official measurements. But I am going to guess that from the base of his hand, from the heel of his palm, to the tip of his middle finger is in the neighborhood of 12 inches. That's a lot. Um, he went to the Yankee game and threw out the first pitch. And I don't know if the Yankees tweeted it out or somebody tweeted out a photo of him holding the ball. Yeah, it looked like a marble. <laughs> yeah, it looked like a golf ball. It looked like what I look like holding a golf ball. Yeah. Um, and so the reason that hand is important is this, I don't think people understand what he is going to do defensively. Obviously, you're going to look at him. And you're going to see, boy, that is a frail young man who is going to get thrown around in the man's league. And that is absolutely true. He is going to get physically dominated and embarrassed on a regular basis. But I do not think people understand how long his arms are and how big his hands are. And he is going to block shots that people are not going to believe he's able to get to. They're going to be NBA players who get a shot and say, okay, here comes my open jumper, mm -hmm. and then eat it. <laughs> and they're going to say, how is that possible? He was 20 feet from me when I started this shot. There's no way he could get there. He can get there because he moves so well, his arms are so long, and his hands are so big. From the moment he steps on the court, he is going to be a defensive playmaker. And he is also somebody who was taught how to dribble. His, his youth coaches were very focused on the Pete Maravich style of teaching and Pete Maravich made these instructional tapes in the 80s where he was obsessed with teaching people to dribble low. 
said you got to dribble low. These, you know, the, the tapes are actually on YouTube. It's actually kind of interesting to see Pete Maravich, you know, in his in his forties uh, before he passed away, teaching these. And so he was taught to dribble low. So you see him out in the perimeter, Tony, and he is seven foot. He's been calling himself seven three. I think he's actually seven five. I'm not so sure why he decided this week he was seven three, but whatever. And he crouches down when he dribbles, and he dribbles the ball very low relatively for a big man. So he's got this handle that he's worked on, plus this size, and so that package we just never seen before. Obviously, he's going to have issues because he is so slight. He is 200 and about 25 pounds. Yeah. That's going to be a problem at times. But I'm telling you, on balance, he's going to get you more than you get him. Does he have, having grown up in Europe... Does he aspire to American basketball players, or does he look at Antetokounmpo or Doncic or Jokic or Embiid and, and relate to them better? The player that he has studied the most is Kevin Durant. He has specifically studied a lot of how Durant uses his footwork to create space and where how he moves into shots and how he moves around, because... Durant is seven foot and handles the ball yeah. and moves on the perimeter. And that's what Victor wants to be. He wants to handle the ball like that. That's who he has studied. But I'm going to tell you, he is both very proud to be French, very much a French teen teenager, but has also aspired to be in America for a very long time. And having ridden in a car with him, I remember riding in this car with him in Paris, and it was a Range Rover. It was a very nice car, and he was basically in the back seat. And I said, Victor, uh, Cadillac Escalade, Chevy Tahoe, when you get to America, you're going to have options for cars. Start researching now. So he's very much looking forward to having American cars. And he, he actually spent some time in Texas and Dallas last summer, spent three weeks in Dallas last summer. He, I think, likes the idea of being in Texas, in San Antonio. So he is, he is embracing becoming an, uh, an adopted American, but he definitely is very proud to be French. Um, I don't like Greg Popovich personally, but I can't <laughs> think of two or three better coaches for him to play for. You know what I mean? What Greg Popovich has done with David Robinson and Tim Duncan and Tony Parker it would seem that, that is, that's the perfect match, right? So one of the things that the Spurs uh, talk about is liking players and helping players, and to, use, to use Popovich parlance, get over themselves. They, they are not here for ego. They are not here for guys who want you know, things to revolve around them. And while Wembenyama is at the centerpiece of everything, and while he kind of talks a little bit, to, you know, he talks some trash, but he does it in a way that's sort of um, endearing in a way. Uh, he's affable, and so it doesn't feel like it. Mm -hmm. But Wembenyama doesn't have, as far as I can tell, he doesn't have a huge ego issue. And I think that will go well for, for, and mesh with Popovich. And they're going to they're gonna go slow. The, you know, we'll see. They have $50 million in cap space. So uh, we'll see what they do. I think they're probably going to get a starting center uh, out of this summer because I don't think they want Wembenyama to be their full-time center. He'll play center, obviously. Um, but they're going to be able to go low and slow here. And uh, it'll be interesting to me. One of the things that's kind of going through the ether, and we'll see whether this plays out or not, he has a teammate in this uh, draft, uh, Tony, um, uh, Bilal Kubali, 
who's a six foot eight wing player who's probably going to go in the lottery. And the word out there is that the Spurs are trying to trade into the lottery to get his teammate to help him mm, be more makes comfortable. Sense. Um, so I, the Spurs have put a lot of thought into how they're going to handle him. And, and you know, they have obviously done this with foreign players in the past very successfully. All right, I'll get you out of here on this because I know you have to go. You have, you're in the rare opportunity here that you have spent time with Wembenyana, who is obviously a phenom. But you spent time with LeBron James in high school when LeBron James was a phenom. Can you compare and contrast, as we say in mm-hmm. the AP test book? Absolutely. I think, Victor, from a skill development standpoint and a NBA habit standpoint, is two years ahead of LeBron. Um, some of the things that Victor is doing uh, in terms of uh, maintaining his body and, and, and phys- you know, working with a physio and stuff like that, LeBron wasn't doing until year two, three, or four. His technique, um, you know, he's been a pro for years now. His technique and his... Um, what he, you know, how to how to operate as a pro athlete. He is years ahead of where LeBron was at a when he came into the NBA, and he's a year older than LeBron when he came in the NBA. He turned 19 in January. Actually, he and LeBron's birthdays are like five days apart. Um, he uh, his birthdays are January 4th. LeBron's is December 30th. So he's like exactly one year older than LeBron. So that's a factor. What LeBron had was an NBA body from day one. When he came into the NBA, he was physically intimidated by one player, Ron Artest. LeBron's rookie year, the only player who really menaced LeBron yeah. physically was Ron Artest. That is obviously going to be the exact opposite case here. Uh, Wembenyama is going to be physically intimidated or physically dominated on a nightly basis. So that's where the difference is. And I also think LeBron had significantly more hype. Remember, he had a $90 million Nike contract in 2003 dollars. Like wow. the same summer that LeBron signed for $90 million, Kobe signed for $40 million with Nike. Kobe was a three-time champion. Okay? LeBron signed for more money out of the gate than Tiger did with Nike. Okay? So, and you think of all the stuff around that. So this guy is hyped, and there's definitely a lot around him. It is, in my view, it is not quite what it was with LeBron. So, but um, he is probably the most, I think he even surpasses Zion. Maybe not in the, in the American viewpoint because, you know, Zion was on TV a yeah. lot. Yeah, Duke, His Duke sure. games got yeah. really high ratings. Um, they, I don't think it's quite the same with the public, but in terms of in the league, he's more, you know, the excitement w- within the league is more, is, is, is on par. It's the most since LeBron. Well, we have to, Wilbon is like giddy about this whole thing. We have to hose him down most of the time. (laughs) Thank you, Brian. Take care, Tony. Brian Windhorst. That was great. That was, that was actually great. We'll take a break. We'll come back with Jason Locke and four. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You're listening listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Amy Tijin again. I've been pronouncing her name wrong. I've said Tijin. It's Tijin. T 
T-E-A-G-I-N. That's not how it's actually spelled, but that is the pronunciation. This is called Heaven. We played Our Time earlier. We're playing Heaven now. This is from her EP, Wax Wonder. Michael, if people like Amy Tijan want to send in their original music, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonycornizershow.com. And she plays in Jason Locke and Fora. And I, I have, I only have a couple of questions. I mean, they're very simple, but there's really only a couple of questions today. You can read Jason's work in the Washington Post, and you can listen to Jason on his radio show in Baltimore. And his knowledge is of the NFL. He's knowledgeable about every sport, but he's most knowledgeable about the NFL. Can you explain to me the gambling policy that the NFL has, why it has been violated so frequently, and what are they going to do about this? Well, um, I I am in no place to speak for them, Tone, but I'll... uh opine anyway uh, i think when you go from a generations long policy of vegas is the third rail gambling is the third rail we don't touch it we don't go there we don't want you going there when you go from that to um putting not just your hands and your feet but your whole face into the gambling trough and and swimming around in it at an ownership level to a degree where, you know, you've got this official gaming partner and that official gaming partner yeah. of individual teams of yeah. the league. You're you're playing signature NFL events in Vegas. There's a team in Vegas. Um, every 30 seconds there's some other sponsorship or some other agreement that's signed that links this NFL entity with this um wagering house if you will um and that happens you know in a mere seemingly seconds compared to the generations of a pretty set and stayed policy i think things can tend to get blurred um people can kind of get confused and the league is efforting to get its messaging straight on this which you know they they tried to do on tuesday at a sort of uh press conference to try to straighten some things out and they've tried to simplify things for players down to to six key um elements but you know this isn't just endemic to to football if if you follow international sport at all you know there've been issues that go way beyond players just gambling on their own sport or doing a parlay um if you look into what's happened in Italian soccer if you look at what's happened in international tennis at some other sports. So I think if you look at it through that prism, you could say, you know what I mean, if Calvin Ridley is seemingly, as far as we know, the worst thing that happened, or some of these Lions players, you know, placing their bet on whatever sport within the, you know, the vicinity of the facility is the worst sort of gambling violation, then, then I would say, you know, those are, are pretty minor um, transgressions com- compared to what I would call full-blown gambling scandals that we've seen in other sports. However, um, clearly there's been a lot of confusion. Clearly there's a double standard for owners versus coaches versus players. It isn't homogenous. Um, and I don't know that anybody should be shocked that the league appears to kind of be making this up on the fly because we've seen this throughout, you know, deflate gate, throughout bounty gate, 
you know, there, there often is a moment in regards to NFL discipline where things happen in a continuum and you're like, I, I think they're kind of just winging it. I totally agree with that. And, and in terms of background, people need to know this. You can do all the commercials you want about betting on basketball or betting on hockey or betting on baseball. There's one big dog here, kids. It's NFL football. That's um, Will Bond can advocate for the NBA all he wants. If you put an NBA championship game on exactly opposite a regular season NFL game, it would be 10 to 1 in favor of the NFL game. And for many years, as Jason well knows, the NFL was unbelievably hypocritical about gambling. And on their television shows from the three networks at one time that that covered the NFL or or broadcast the NFL, there was Pete Axthelm on NBC, there was Jimmy the Greek on CBS, and there was Hank Goldberg on ESPN. And they made picks. They made bets all the time. But maybe they didn't mention the point spread by the numbers. And maybe Brent Musburger just said, oh, that's a late touchdown, laddie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a lot of people are going to be angry about that. Yeah. And the NFL did this all the time. They put one hand out and one hand back. And they did it for years and years and years. And now that they've, everybody in America has dived into betting and the trough, as you say, it, it, it strikes me. And Wilbon says this all the time. What are you talking about? You have partners you have yes. partners who are gambling. That is their entire raison d'etre for being out there. That's what they do. So in that regard, I think all you could probably say to a player or a coach is, just please don't bet on this sport, right? What else can you do? Yeah, and I mean, they don't want them placing bets on mobile devices, you know, Why? at the team facility. You know, here's the other thing, Why? as we know in this country with many things. This is also a state-by-state situation. So mm-hmm. what you might be able to do walking down the street, even on your way to the casino in Maryland, is a whole lot different than what it might be in New Hampshire or, or Nebraska or whatever. So not that they have NFL teams in those states, so that's probably a bad example, but, you know, whatever, Georgia. So, you know, I think you, you kind of always run that risk as well, right? Like even back when they were in the business of really trying to police marijuana used to ungodly weird levels where they're testing their players more than airline pilots get tested, you know, and then eventually the wind changes and enough states are like, we don't care anymore, to where we don't hear about that anymore. I guess the difference here is one player violating this policy in a certain way that affects, you know, or even gives the perception that it may have affected the outcome of a game, um, you know, now now we're in uncharted territory for this league, I guess. Well, I guess you'd have to go back to Paul Horning or whatever. And and now we've got a major problem on our hands. Um, I know this, Tone. They're spending a lot of money and spending a lot of time having um, different sort of outside entities along with NFL security trying to monitor this, you know, and looking for any signs of real impropriety. And it seems like the reputable um, – or, I don't know, more reputable, uh, entity, like gambling entities are also, you know, very interested in policing this because, you know, they feel like this golden goose goes both ways. That's right. But I also think it would be naive. I think it would be incredibly naive to think that as this grows, that we're going to be looking at this saying, well, that Calvin Ridley suspension was, you know what I mean? That was the, that was the big moment, or that was, that was the, 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 
the the big scandal. I, I think inevitably, no matter how they try to simplify this, or no matter what they do, someone will probably blur these rules or just flout these rules in a way that isn't good for the league and isn't good for that person and isn't good for whoever took that bet. Do you, is the NFLPA, what is their position on this? Are they advocating for their players to have the right to bet like normal citizens, or do they concede you know, that maybe the integrity of the game issue is legitimate? I have not really um, inquired about that, so I wouldn't want to, you know what I mean, yeah. just guess. I mean, obviously, the more that they grow this pot financially, the more that, you know, their share of the pot grows, and that's obviously how the salary cap goes and grows itself, and then that's how, you know, the overall salaries around the league go up. Um, but I haven't, you know, I haven't inquired, and that is that is an interesting thought, and I, I should probably ask Dean well, Smith. This is sort of, it's what I'm going to say now, I mean, I totally mean this, that this is unbelievable that for, that for the first four billion years, all sports leagues were all anti-gambling yep. completely. And they said to the public, we can't have gambling because then you won't have faith in our product. And so you have a referee like Donaghy or you have Paul Horning or an Alex Karras. And when they're around the peripheries, well, Donaghy wasn't around the periphery, but you always said, no, 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 this can't happen. And then they finally said, well, players make so much money that they wouldn't even risk it, which is not necessarily true if you believe Phil Mickelson is a significant gambler or something like that. And they said, stay away, stay away, stay away, stay away. And then at the first opportunity, they dove into the pool, all of them together. They dove in so hard that the, that the water came out of the pool. It's unbelievable, yeah. is it not? No, it, it is one of the more hypocritical oh. uh turns in I think modern sports history in this country and yeah I, I you know every covering different sports over the years I mean I covered baseball I covered um, hockey I covered obviously football for a long time every three five years something would be going on in Congress and you would see these joint press releases and it would be from the lobbyist of all these leagues aligned you know what I mean it'd be the NFL the MLB yes MLS NHL, NBA, all believe that this statute in this state should not pass. And here's why. Like, they were lockstep. And then, yeah, they must have all collectively gotten the sense that, hey, this dam's going to break and there's way more money in it than we thought. And we might be looking at a situation from the NFL standpoint. And I had people tell me, and I even, I, I mean, even wrote about this back when I was still at CBS four or five years ago, that you, you, they were getting the sense that, the two areas of growth that it, over time, over long terms of, of the future, might rival the broadcast deals, which we know is the ultimate subsidy for everybody, yeah. was growing the game internationally and wagering. And that those might become the na you know, number two, number three, in whatever order, revenue streams for this league as a whole over the next 25 or 50 years. So, you know, when the margins look that massive that they could affect each team in such a significant way, then, yeah, all of a sudden, all those lawyers and all those lobbyists change their tune. They go the other way. And, and, and they don't even say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a moonwalk here. They don't even say that. <laughs> they don't even say that. It's just remarkable. I get one other topic, and I don't know if you know anything about this. This is very, very local. The Masson deal. 
that the, uh, apparently the Orioles and the Nationals have settled on something from 15 years ago, but they yeah. still have to settle on something from five years. What, do you, can you explain it, or should we just say stop, leave it alone? I, I can't explain it in any great depth other okay. than I know that from 2012 to 2016, that is now resolved, adjudicated. Um, each team's going to get something like a little over $99 million from Masson for each year of those years, and now they have to look at 2017 through 2021. I would hope, I would guess. Wouldn't you follow the same formula? Uh, that's what I'm saying. I would yeah. hope that they now have a template that could be applied yeah, with sure. relative sort of ease to resolve those lingering issues. Um, but that's, yeah, I really know the... You know, I know as much as you because we read no, the post, yeah. and we're lucky to have the post. And yeah. the post has done tremendous reporting on this over the years. Um, but I'm just, you know, good. I don't if know. It's you. good for the Nats and good for the O's. Then I'm for it. Yeah, we're all for that. There's a license plate in my neighborhood. A guy personalized license plate Nats O's. It's you know, it's yeah. You can like you can like them both. It's okay to like them both. Plug your radio show for us. Uh, you can listen to me. Um, meander around from 2 to 6 every weekday on uh, 105.7 The Fan in Baltimore. You could also hear us anywhere as a podcast or in real time, episodic, whatever, on the Odyssey app. It is inside access, again, from 2 to 6. A lot of NFL, a lot of Ravens, a lot of Orioles, a lot of baseball. A little bit of gambling tone. I'd be likely lying if I said, hey, you'll probably hear me do a read for Pet MGM at some point through the afternoon. We got kids to send to college. You got to do what you got to do. Thank you, Jason. Jason Larkin for our boys and girls. Love it. Love it. We will come back with email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. Here comes Tony's mailbag. Got your emails, faxes, and your notes. Here comes Tony's mailbag. Gonna read some for all you folks. That was Jingle Fest from 2022. Jingle Fest is on this weekend. We wish everybody... Godspeed, good health, and a wonderful time at Jingle Fest. Lunches, golf. A lot of good things to do. Yes. You know, as the sightseeing tour. Tours of La Cheeserie. Bonnie's taking people around. Yes. You know, and all of that. You want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad for us? Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you will be thrilled. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, now the doctor came in stinking of gin and proceeded to lie on the table. He said, Rocky, you met your match. And Rocky said, Doc, it's only a scratch and I'll be better. I'll be better as soon as I am able. That's Rocky Raccoon. We'll get to raccoon stories in the mailbag. Yes. We'll get to that. Thanks to our guest today, Brian Windhorst, Jason Lockenfora. Thanks, for Brian, for getting up really early. Thanks as well to today's sponsors, Nuts.com, Grammarly. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Um, Let me get to raccoons. From Benji Portno in Pittsburgh. 
While listening to Wednesday's show, I think I found the topic on which I want to send my first email, raccoons. I grew up in a neighborhood called Fern Hill in a suburb of Minneapolis. One year, the neighborhood decided to hold a contest for residents to design the new official neighborhood signs that dot the area, but serve virtually no purpose. The contest was not to put to a public vote, was not put to a public vote, but had it been, the unanimous winner would have been the design depicting two raccoons eating out of a tipped over garbage trash can. My favorite raccoon story of my youth, of which there are many, take place on the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. One night as my father was washing dishes from dinner, he looked out to see three raccoons climbing on our wooden sukkah. They were not the fox-like creatures of children's cartoons, but the mythical rodents of unusual size from the Princess Bride. And as one walked across the 15-year-old wooden beams along the top, one beam gave out and down went the raccoon. While the raccoon casually walked out the door moments later, we decided that wasn't the night we would sleep outside. Thanks for giving me something to listen to while I sit in traffic. She did it again today, Chessie. She went, we're coming up the ramp. And she turns and she sniffs and she puts her head right next to a mesh fence and she wants to go through the fence. I mean, it is tug of war. I'm afraid I'm going to actually break her neck as I pull her away because she's much stronger than I am. But there's a scent there. There is. From Joe Pearson in Indianapolis. She looks pretty content right now. She does. Who emails us often. Put up a good I fight. can't believe this is the second time I'm writing to you about raccoons. <laughs> At least this time you didn't say they were cats. For the record, raccoons do have natural predators in the D.C. area, including foxes, coyotes, and yes, dogs. Owls and hawks will also prey on the young. Judging by the pictures of Chessie, the internet provides, I know. I'd make her a a minus 180 favorite on the money line. Wouldn't emerge unscathed, but would come away with a win. Team Chessie all the way. From Ashanti in Seattle, in regards to the blossoming raccoon problem, have you tried Langer monkeys? Well, I've heard they work wonders. They do. Good track record. That's very, very nice. Um, Okay. What have I got here? This is from Mike Aftal. Tomorrow, before the sun rises, I'm driving my three kids across the country to see, it's pronounced Kaftal, Mike Kaftal, Calhoun, Georgia. Tomorrow before the sun rises, I'm driving my three kids across the country to see relatives. What's on my mind? Mapping the route, checking the weather. No, it's your question regarding don't forget the code inspiring baseball player being the worst in baseball. Putting my mathematics degree and baseball fanaticism to work, I decided it was better to dig up some data instead of packing the family truckster. Packing a minivan is a learned skill. I was born for baseball stats. (laughs) Besides, I can pack while they sleep tonight. It turns out your local first baseman may not be the worst i believe what i said was i believe he's in the bottom five yes in the entire major leagues on you know if from a from an production standpoint yeah for an everyday for a power position yes power position player i filtered all first basemen by at least having played 40 games and eliminated those who are at least one game better than a replacement player war for those who know here are the top five or worst five depending on your perspective jose abreu of the astros former mvp yeah. of the white sox Minus 1.1. Trey Mancini, former player for the Orioles. Yeah, very good Cubs, minus 0.8. Tristan Cassis, or Casas, Red Sox, don't know him. Yeah. Minus 0.3. Garrett Cooper of the Marlins, minus 0.1. And fifth, Dominic Smith, Nationals, minus 0.1. Now, he does rank last in some notable categories among qualifying first basemen. Last in home runs, last in extra base hits, barely beating out Mike Moustakas. How about at-bats per extra base hit? The cheese stands alone. Coming in at an astounding one extra base hit every 28.1 at-bats. Mm. Ten at-bats worse than the next guy, Jose Abreu. 
If I expand this list to other power positions, DH, third base outfield, he looks a little better. Coming in third worst, Jesse Winkler in Milwaukee takes 39 at-bats for extra base hits. And Gene Segura, who I thought was good with the Phillies, <coughs> needs 34.2. In fact, Gene Segura in 205 at-bats has a war of minus 1.6, the worst in baseball, and only has six extra base hits. He does, however, have a triple, so he has that going for him, which is nice. So is he the worst? We can definitely say he's in the top 20. Please make a note to those watching on News Channel 8 that the graphics are amazing. Sincerely, my calf doll. I'm including the spreadsheet and the PDF for printing reasons. This validates, yes. validates what I have said. Yes. Makes me very It's happy. that lack of extra base hits. That's the one that defines He's got it. a home run and a triple and a double. Yeah, that's it. And yeah. everything else is singles. Right. That's, you know, he's that's number all. one in high fives. Oh, he's great at high fives. <laughs> well, he's great at that. It's good to be. From Daniel Parizo or Parezo. I hope this email finds you well. Really? My name is Daniel Perezo, and I'm reaching out to you because I, like yourself, an alum. I'm an, I'm an alum of Binghamton University, having graduated this May. Currently, I am unemployed and have been unsuccessful in finding work in any field. It's June. It's not like you've been out on the street for five years. Okay, but in today's world, you've been searching for that job your entire senior year. Okay. I am unemployed and have been unsuccessful in finding work in any field. I've been applying to all sorts of jobs simply for the fact that they pay with little to no interest in any of them. My true passion is sports, particularly basketball, having played it my entire life and having also watched it basically just as long. Anyway, I was wondering if you could offer me any advice as to how I could begin a career in sports media, having no real experience outside of a small sample of articles I've written and podcast episodes I've made for fun, or if you know any opportunities I can seek out to get my foot in the door in the field. Any advice would be greatly appreciated and thank you for your time. Also, I'd like to say you and Michael Wilbon have been inspirations to me and have much to do with my love for sports. I have many memories watching PTI as a young kid after school with my older brother. Thank you again. So, I mean, when I get something like this, it's always the same. It is this. Gee, I'd really like to have your job, Tony. <laughs> I, really, I, I understand that. Yeah, just... I understand millions of kids would like to have my job. But you have I'm going to be 75 years old, so you've got a long wait. <laughs> I mean, you've got you to gotta wait through... you got to... To get my job, you have to have a series of other jobs. And this seems to be the problem for young Daniel Perezo. So I would say to him what I say to people all the time in terms of advice. I don't know what your competence level is. I understand what you're saying to me about your interest. I understand you don't really want to take a job selling shoes. You don't really want to take a job in the bank. You don't really want to take a job in construction. You don't really want to learn to be a plumber, although being a plumber or an electrician will pay you gobs of money yes gobs of money you may not want to say oh i went to college and now i do this gobs of money very protected fields you know yes. and yes and people need need them your services yes gobs of money but here's my advice there are some smart kids at binghamton you go up to find the smartest kid in binghamton and you stand at his or her side for the rest of your life that's what you do if you're out on your bike tonight, do wear white. Victor Wembanyama, Victor Wembanyama, Victor Wembanyama.
say